Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome to the Ghibliotech, the podcast that dives into the depths of the world's greatest animation studio, Studio Ghibli. I'm Michael Leader, and I'm at the deep end. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I'm getting far from the shallow now. So join us in our quest into the glorious world of Ghibli. So, Jake, to, we labour this whole Ghibliotech as a library that we're sequestered in, mm. metaphor quite far. So some, today we could call ourselves something of a touring Ghibliotech, a touring library. Yes, it's, it's certainly a lot more spacious than our regular library. And that's because we're recording live today at the BFI South Bank, NFT3, uh, for Podstock. Mm. And uh, what are we doing today, as usual? It's just the standard show. Uh, a lot of people have paid some of their good hard cash to just see you and me talk about films. That's the special event. I think we've got to that stage now, haven't yeah. we? <laughs> no, actually, we do have a special guest today. We're going to talk about a film that is very unique in the Studio Ghibli canon, one that is produced by Studio Ghibli or co-produced and made almost entirely outside of Japan. Yes. Uh, yeah, this is a really interesting film and there's so much to get into, but I think we're not really the people to give it the best context. No, who better to give context than the director of The Red Turtle himself, Michael Dudok-DeWitt. And please welcome him to the stage, Michael. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, thank you. Providing insights and context that Jake and I couldn't possibly match. Um, so what we like to do here is we like to talk about context, production, background, and then get to grips with the film itself. I think to begin with, uh, something that defines this podcast for me and Jake is just as much the experience of animation and seeing these films um, as, as much as the films and the craft itself. I'd love to know, as a viewer of these films, as a creator of these films, what was your route into animation? My route into animation. <clears throat> I went to art college. Uh, I'm from the Netherlands. I went to art college and did comic strips on the side. And then I went... Then I realized um, if you have this narrative of comic strips and you have the music, wouldn't that be absolutely amazing? <laughs> so, and then I saw my first uh, animation festival in Annecy in France uh-huh. um, in 75. Mm. And I saw just films, I watched all the films and they bought me over and, and then it was clear. Mm. What were these films that were uh, inspiring you and exciting <laughs> you as a, as a creator or the comic strips that were... Exciting. Comic strip. There was um, there was um, um, a birth of a whole new wave of comic strips. I grew up with the very safe comic strips for young people, mm-hmm. and then uh, you know the Tintins the, mm-hmm. and so on, the, the, the Bel- Franco-Belgian comic strips, and then suddenly new subjects became. It, it's part of you know part of the sixties and early seventies. Uh, new subjects like mysticism, sex, politics, uh, violence suddenly became available in comics. Mm-hmm. Um, that was very exciting. Mm-hmm. So there was um, a magazine uh, called Heavy Metal in, yeah. in the States. Mm-hmm. It was uh, Mitali Holon in France. That was like, oh my God, especially Mebius. Yeah. And then um, the first festival I went to in Annecy, I saw uh, Eastern European films. One filmmaker in particular, Yuri uh, Norstein. Right. Russian filmmaker. A Russian filmmaker from Moscow, and they were very poetic. They were dark, 
some of them were very dark, his were very poetic, very symbolic. Mm -hmm. And that was new. You know, I grew up with Disney and Hanna Barbera, mm -hmm. and to see that was like, I'm, I'm home, this is it. <laughs> yeah, because the 1970s, some would say not the golden age of mainstream feature-length television animation, but it sounds like shorts are where the experimentation, the, the innovation was. Yes. yes. So is that yeah. what made you go into short filmmaking, because that's where you started yes. out of college? Yes. We do have a slide here mm. um, with Tom Sweep, oh, yeah. Monk and the Fish, and Father and Daughter, which are three films you made over the course of a decade. Uh, very labour-intensive decade, I, I'm sure, for what, what amounts to no more than half an hour of screen time, I imagine. No, much less than <laughs> half an hour, yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I was lucky because it was also the golden age of commercial animation, in, right. especially in here in London. Um, so I moved to London for that. It was, it was, I didn't see it as compromise because a lot of uh, uh, TV commercials in those days were very artistic and were not pushing the product too much. It, they were quite discreet on the product and quite strong on the artistic side of the film. Mm -hmm. And that appealed to me and the fact that I could make, survive financially from making animation. And there was a huge freelance network, people meeting all the time in different studios. Mm -hmm. So it was very fertile um, start of my, of my uh, career in a way. A lot of experience, a lot of... Uh, you know, learning how to be professional and so on. And often they were very, very well paid also. Mm -hmm. so I, I that could, does help. I could, <laughs> that does help. So I could totally live from that. Uh -huh. And was it a case of working on the ads during the day and then at night just scribble down a few frames of Tom Sweet? <laughs> Not that literally, but <laughs> on the side I had my, um, my, my personal projects. There were comics, yeah. Mm -hmm. So at this time, I suppose 1970s less so, but once you get into the mid-80s, that's when Studio Ghibli is founded. Were they, as filmmakers, on your radar at that time, or was it much later that you became aware of them? Later, early 90s. Uh -huh. um, I think it was La Puta, Castle in the Sky, that I saw first, again in Annecy Animation Festival uh -huh. in France. Um, and I asked an animator friend, I, I told him, that was that Japanese film that really stood out. And he said, well, it's Studio Ghibli. And I didn't, I'd never heard of, it, of them. And often they're called Ghibli in, in France, but they themselves say Ghibli. And I'd never heard of uh, the studio, so then suddenly something woke up. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the pronunciation of the name yeah. Ghibli I'm, there, which is something we've discussed yes. many times. And actually with an audience here, I'd like to have a show of hands. Who says Ghibli? Who says Ghibli? Okay, I, I would like it on record that a director of one of the films has just confirmed a J sound. <laughs> exactly. So if we can all change over to that, that'd be great. <laughs> yes, actually it's an Italian word and the Italians... Would say Ghibli. Would say Ghibli. Yeah. This is the, the confusion of translations between languages, yeah. yeah. Um, oh, no. Well, let's not get into that too far. We don't need any more as iTunes reviews about it. name correctly as well, <laughs> you today, did, Michael, yes. yes. <laughs> um, something that's interesting, you were interviewed for Sight and Sound when Red Turtle came out by your son, Alex. And um, in the introduction, he said that his introduction to these films was, uh, to, to Studio Ghibli, was growing up with you, um, seeing them almost dodgy DVDs from Chinatown, which is how I first... <laughs> in, 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 the only way to get Princess Monoki back then in the 90s when that first came out yeah. was... Did, did having a child and introducing a child to these films also give you a different angle on Studio Ghibli or animation films in general? Maybe, yes. You, you change when you have children. Yeah, mm -hmm. maybe. I've never seen myself as an animate, uh, animator or animation director okay. to, focused on children. Okay. Um, and the, the Red Turtle we, that we made together is definitely child compatible, but it's not a, a, ch a children's film. It's not a family film typically either. It's mm -hmm. more all ages. Yeah. I love that term, child compatible. <laughs> I've never heard that before. I think I'll use that. <laughs> so let's just skip forward to Father and Daughter, which is, was finished in 2000. It won the best animated short Oscar that year. What, does that, how, what impact does that have on a career um, in the animation community, in the shorts community? And it's the film that I hear that Ghibli saw and yes. started this long conversation. Okay, there, there's several angles on, on Oscars. Of course, it's the most famous prize in, in the industry, in the world. So to be nominated and, and or to, to win is like the, by far the best advertisement for your, for your film, by mm -hmm. far, that's clear. 
um, I would say to have um, a grand prize again at the Annecy Animation Festival mm -hmm. is harder to, to get. Uh, there are more films in competition. Uh, so within the industry, is, it's seen as more prestigious. Mm -hmm. um, and some other festivals too. But um, you have, when you make a short film, you have to try to get it nominated mm -hmm. because it's, it's fantastic. I only realized once I got there. I, I never watched the Oscar ceremony on television. Um, but I, I remember the day um, it was nominated, um, I was working on a commercial for the States, and, and we were sitting in, in, um, in the edit suite, and an American was sitting there, and he overheard my conversation. Someone phoned me, a friend phoned me, said, you're, you're shortlisted. And he exploded. He said, you must go there. <laughs> and I said, okay, you know, a bit like... Uh, typically uh, European or typically British, I said, I'll take it as it comes and it will be great. And so on. once you are there, it's crazy. It's crazy. Mm. It's their religion. It's right. much more than an award. Uh -huh. um, and they do it well and it's huge. And um, I mean, just to participate. Mm -hmm. It's it's very uh, on one level. It's a party. Right. Um, the moment the ceremony is over and people start standing up, and you look around and you see all these celebrities a bit tired and makeup has suffered a bit and so because it's very long and <laughs> uh, you think oh it's good to see people are real people yeah. um, because it's very it's very um, glitzy and glamorous mm -hmm. um, what did it do for my short film when my, my, my uh, I made a short film which was nominated which didn't win the next film won the Oscar um, the moment you hear your name and name of your film, you you just walk to the stage because you mustn't trip. <laughs> I mean, you you're in a trance. You you must do it correctly. Um, it's very it's very strange. You're you're so hyped up, so mm. hyped up. And I did a speech and I t talked to the microphone like this and looked at the audience and and that's bizarre when you have famous film stars looking you in the eyes, the Clint Eastwoods and oh, yeah. Juliette Binoche and so on, looking you in the eyes. That's strange. <laughs> Then uh, I had to. Then there was a press, lots of photos and for the press with Ben Stiller. I didn't know who he was, but so <laughs> <laughs> he presented that year. He, yeah. he presented yeah. that year in in two thousand, and um, I mean he was very charming. And then walking alone back in behind stage to to, to make my way back to the seats, I suddenly realized, oh my God, this is it. Um, practically, it doesn't make so much difference. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm, I've met regularly people who think that sh making short films is cute, but when, when are you going to make a real film, like a feature film? Uh -huh. And then when they find out that you travel all over the world, that you get some awards, um, that your film is seen, is seen a lot, then they start thinking twice. They think, actually, you've got a really nice profession. <laughs> <laughs> um, I noticed the difference in attitudes of some people. Mm -hmm. So was... Was this always an ambition of yours to make a feature-length film, or you, no. you, you say that short films yeah. are uh, you know, uh, an art in its own right? It, it was not, but I, I, you know, I played a bit with the script, which was on the door. It wasn't strong enough. Uh -huh. So when Studio Ghibli contacted me, it was their initiative. Uh -huh. When they contacted me, um, saying, "We like your short films. Uh, we like, in particular, Father and Daughter." Uh -huh. Um, we, they made the biggest compliments you can imagine. They said, we think it's very Japanese. Okay. Um, and I can see why, why they say that. And they said, have you ever thought of making a feature film? Um, we would like to produce it. And we would co-produce it with our distributors in France, mm -hmm. Bunch. Uh, it would be a French-Japanese co-production. And you would direct it in Europe mm -hmm. with, with European uh, artists. And I asked them, do you mean... Um, uh, you have a story or you want uh, they said no you write story you set the style and we'll take it step by step it may not work but we just see if it works um, I, I didn't have a big ambition to make feature because you have to especially in the States you have to compromise so much mm. their uh, feature films are, are producers films where the producer is the ultimate the, the ultimate uh, responsible for the film and they can sack the director and get another one in. And that's fine, that works, and, and that makes the film also very commercially very strong. Um, the Studio Ghibli is very much a director's film studio. Mm -hmm. Once the director, when it's clear who is the director, the director has the final say. What, whatever the others say, whether they like it, even when Miyazaki likes it or not, mm -hmm. it's the director's responsibility to make a beautiful film. Yeah. And that, of course, is totally my, my, uh, my, my, that's where I feel at home. Mm -hmm. 
So they confirmed that, and they said it would be on a French law because American law is don't go there, English law is don't go there either. <laughs> Japanese law definitely don't go there. <laughs> okay. And French, the French law in the film industry respects auteur films, right? Particularly uh, well. Um, so the, the film, by the way, was made in France mostly and mm. in Belgium. Right. To, to go back to that first initial conversation, who are you speaking to there? Was that Toshio Suzuki? Was yes. that Satakata? Because when you talk about, yes, it's a, a studio founded by two filmmakers, but then you have Toshio yes. Suzuki, who is the man in yes. the background, who seems to be the one that almost whips the others into yes. making films over 20 yeah. years when they'd rather almost retire or whatever. So please, can you <laughs> contextualize that? Suzuki is a character. He's yeah. the youngest of the three. Yeah. They need, needed him, of course. You can't be two directors and just run a studio and make films. Mm -hmm. You need a producer. He, um, he introduced himself to them. He worked for, um, I think it was a newspaper mm -hmm. uh, before, but he, he kind of gradually worked himself, um, made himself... Um, close to them right. before the they created Studio Ghibli and then um, he has he has the, the talent of finding what is right at this moment for this particular market for this particular filmmaker mm -hmm. so he would advise for instance typically he would advise Miyazaki maybe it's not the right time to, to, to treat this subject but you wanted to make another subject why don't you concentrate on that things like that and they trust they trust him. Yeah. They did, he did same with me. He was the one who initially thought of working with with a non Japanese director mm -hmm. with me, and he convinced Takata to to be part of the game because he felt that Takata would be um, a better spokesperson to, of Studio Ghibli to for me to work with. Mm -hmm. And in, uh, he is a director, Takata, and a producer, of course, but a director, whereas Suzuki is, is, looks more at the business side. Mm -hmm. um, but he has very good intuition, too, Suzuki. Mm -hmm. Very, very good. And he, is, he can draw very well. And he has designed many of the titles in, in calligraphy mm -hmm. okay. uh, on the posters mm -hmm. and on the DVDs. So together, Suzuki and Ta Takata uh, approached me. And Takata was just going to be you know, uh, how can you say it, like a mentor for, mm. for me, just overseeing that everything is fine. But as soon as we had our first meeting, I asked him for more feedback than he he expected. Mm -hmm. And he, he literally asked me, so you want our feedback? Right. <laughs> he was very, very discreet, very mm. polite. And I said, yes, I need your feedback. Um, partly, of course, because I have far more experience. Well, Takata has, has a personal, very rich culture and a very fine sensitivity. Uh, so I was very curious about his opinion. And also the Japanese sensitivity. It was never going to be a Japanese film or a European film, just a film. Um, but it, Japanese sensitivity, especially from their classical uh, art, um, uh, resonates with me big time. So I was curious about that too. Yeah. Well, that, and that was the compliment that they paid you, that it yes. feels Japanese. Yes. What is that to you? Okay, the uh, the emotion of father and daughter. Uh -huh. um, so now I'm just talking specifically about father and daughter. The emotion of longing that they recognize that really, really strongly in their culture. It's universal. It's human, but they they have a word for it. They they um, it's it's strong for them. That contained longing, not going all over the place, but very pure contained longing for a daughter, for a father. The um, the simple graphic style, very, very simplified, very, very, very simple. Um, Takata especially loved, loved that. And he actually, he, he tries to, uh, to do the same thing in his way, of course, um, in, his, in several of his films. Mm. So it, it's such a wild concept, you know, it's an amazing idea for Suzuki to have to produce a non-Japanese film. But for you as the filmmaker that's brought into the room, so to speak, Studio Ghibli, as, as, as a name in front of a film, has so many associations for people around the world. When you're making a film, developing a screenplay, mm. left to mm. your own devices, mm. do you feel, did you feel any pressure to throw in a witch <laughs> or anything like that, you know, things that they would expect? <laughs> or a little Totoro on yeah, the side. Exactly, yeah. um, not pressure, but I've, I mean, whoever the producer would have been, I felt that if I make a feature film, mm -hmm. it has to be not a good animated feature film, but it has to be an excellent animated mm -hmm. feature film. Um, my, my personal ambition was very high, 
um, I expected expected they would be um, their standard would be very high, and somehow it's not literally that I felt I had to prove myself to them, but I felt both our levels were very very high, mm-hmm. and in fact at one point our the, the the style of our animation which is quite realistic, not very cartoony, quite realistic, mm-hmm. and quite detailed. Um, there I was. Um, incredibly ambitious because it's a difficult style for animators in general. There are always exceptions, but animators in general love uh, slightly more cartoony uh, animation. So, and f- for me, it is, it's a difficult style too. I would struggle with that style. But I felt it was the best for the film. Mm-hmm. Um, simply the feeling of it and, and the visuals of it. So, And we found the, the good animators. But Takata said, um, you're too ambitious. You, you, won't, you won't get that level. of Because we sent him a test scene, uh-huh. which, which was beautiful, of a guy swimming underwater and, and spearing a fish. And he said, it's very nice, but you can't make a film in that style. It's, it's yeah. too difficult. And then once the film was finished, he said, well done. <laughs> <laughs> so we showed him. Yeah. The team, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I find it interesting. The, these three shorts look so different to the way that the Red Turtle looks. And if anything, this, the clear line style and the, real, the realism of the characters is almost more Franco-Belgian. And when yeah. you said that you, yes. you read Tintin growing up, it's almost yeah. similar to that style. Yes. And so what made you go in that direction? Because there's something so... So cartoony or figurative about Tom Sweet, etc. Yes, in a way, you, you you decide almost without reasoning. You 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 go by by feeling what feels right. Um, but of course, I ask myself the same question: um, Why would I choose a style which is difficult to animate? Mm-hmm. And or let's put it this way: If you're not, if it's weakly and it's not very well animated, it shows a very lot. It's very risky. It's very vulnerable style. Um, I done some commercials in that style, right, right. and they immensely. I, I, I was incredibly happy with with the, the realistic uh, feeling of the body. Um, I'm deeply influenced by Tintin and and some similar artists from Belgium, um, including Mebius from France. And also, I realized afterwards, I grew up my my primary school. I had little books of short stories from different authors, Dutch authors and, and some translated from America. And they were illustrated in a style, a very realistic style. These were books from the 1930s, from, from my f- previous generation. So th- they were exquisite. I've bought them secondhand m- uh, more, uh, much later. The drawings in there were just amazing. Um, the, ve- the closest to that is Prince Valiant uh, comic strips from yeah. a long time ago and Winsor McKay, that, yeah. that kind of style. So I've always loved that style. So I think it, it pushed me in that, in that direction, first unconsciously. And then when I remembered those books, I thought, oh, yeah, of course, that's, that's what pushes me. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And what's 
your role as a director or animator in this film because you're obviously you can't be animating every cell yeah. of it. You're having to delegate yeah. and hand that responsibility over. It's, there's definitely an element of trust there in yes. who you're working with and what that process is. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't animate anything, so the level of trust um, was my um, biggest worry. Um, how good will the team be and how um, how what will be the alchemy between the, my collaborators and I will we understand each other because you can talk for days about how to, to do things better but at some point like in music you just have to feel from each other what what you want to achieve it's, it's very intuitive how intuitive will be, we will be as a team so in the beginning I was incredibly um, sensitive uh, we chose the artists very slowly um, they just presented themselves one by one as freelance artists from Western Europe and they send their portfolio and then they do a test and um, the, the best ones you write to them saying we really really like what you do uh, we, we keep on our list and as soon as we start we hope you are still available because we want you and that way we recruited very slowly we recruited the animators a small team because production period was long enough to allow for a small team and um, in the beginning, we had to feel our, our way in. I had to see what are their strong points, where are, they, who, where are the weaknesses of each person. And um, they, in the same time, they, they tried to feel what, what my vision was. I had a lot of preparatory drawings, a lot. I mean, thousands. But that's not animation. That's just storyboard and the animatic. Um, which says a lot, but not enough. So for the first two or three months, we had to kind of dance together, and then the first good scenes came in. The first animators, the first animators who started, started doing the really good scenes. And I remember saying to my assistant, "Look at that! Look at that! That's fabulous!" And then we then things started crystallizing. Mm. So yeah, there was a lot of trust. They trusted me because I was experienced and by chance also the oldest. And I had a Ghibli aura around me mm -hmm. <laughs> because I'd spoken with the, for years and years I'd spoken with Studio Ghibli on the, on the story and on the storyboard. So they knew that uh, anything they, they saw in the preparation was already digested, thoroughly digested by me and, and, and my producers. So what was that process over the years developing this story then uh, and the feedback, was, the back and forth? Yeah, that was difficult because it's a very simple story, as you know, Castaway on a Desert Island. That can only go a few directions. You can't go en in endless new directions with that, especially the ending. Mm. Is he leaving or is he staying? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I didn't want to fall back on the Robinson Crusoe story at all. Certainly not um, a Blue Lagoon or a Swiss Family Robinson, mm. certainly not. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I tried to watch all the Desert Island films that I could find, uh -huh. including Castaway. Castaway is <laughs> pretty good, yeah. and including quite a nice one by Buñuel. I, I didn't know he had oh. made one. Um, and my biggest problem was not so much telling someone alone on an island and how does he survive. That went actually very quickly, but. Um, his relationship with first a woman and then as a family and the ending, it's fragile, it's subtle. If it works, it's like poetry, if it works well, then it's strong. But if it doesn't work perfectly, then it immediately becomes very weak. Mm -hmm. um, you can't hide behind action or behind suspense. Mm -hmm. um, let's put this way, the, 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 the parts of the story where everybody's happy, where there's very peaceful moments, those are the most vulnerable. Because my fear was, of course, I don't want to lose the spectator. Mm -hmm. I want to keep the spectator totally in the story, which is easy in a short film because anyone who watches a short film will forgive you if, if the short film rambles a bit and is not very strong because it's only a few minutes. You know, people have that attention. People get uh, are too impatient if the film is, is, has very, very, very weak moments. Mm -hmm. Um, they zap to something else or they leave the cinema or whatever and I, I knew that we all know that so I, my biggest worry was it's a very quiet film at times very simple very poetic but I have to totally engage each member of the audience and you don't even have dialogue as another thing to fall back on was there ever a, a version of this film that could have had dialogue or was it always like your previous films mm. free of dialogue 
to make a short film for your of dialogue is not at all adventurous. Many people do. It works yeah. because uh, verbal language is only one of the languages yeah. and a very good one and, of course, used beautifully in endless films, but not a must. It's not essential to have verbal language. Mm -hmm. um, I've done dialogue in commercials um, and to make a feature film in dial uh, without dialogue, it was not my, even not my plan. Mm -hmm. Originally, I had some dialogue. Um, I really believed we, we needed some dialogue to have a stronger empathy with the characters, um, but also simply to explain what they feel. At one point, um, the son tells his parents that he, he wants to leave. Yeah. Just to, to say that line already, I, th I thought it doesn't have to be a long conversation, just to say something in that style um, is essential for the story. Or when a man and a woman first meet, you you. I mean, I would talk if, if I would be in his position. I would simply try to find out who the hell is, <laughs> hell is she, does she understand me, um, and so on. And uh, there was some dialogue at that moment too. I think that, um, that moment where the son tells them that he's going to leave, there's some really interesting work there with the way that the bodies move and even the small, the non-verbal sounds, the sighs or the gestures or whatever, that make the show that this is uh, such a global language um, and I think that's maybe rooted in the production of it as well that you are having to be such an international co-production uh, and you're ultimately telling a story that everyone is able to understand yeah well to be honest the, the fact that the dialogue free film is easier to distribute was never um, a consideration um, once we chose to um, to make a dialogue free one producer said, smiling, oh, we'll make it simpler for the, uh, the translation. But if it was important to have some dialogue in there, we would have kept it. Mm -hmm. That's, that was not a consideration. And as I said, I thought the dialogue was essential, but it just didn't feel right, right. for that story. Yeah. Um, so we dropped it. It's not completely free of voice. There are a few hays right. in there. Yes. Do they dub that in different languages? No. In the Japanese <laughs> version where they have yes. their own hay? <laughs> uh, I wouldn't know what, what the Japanese would say, but I see what you mean. Um, and what you don't notice, and, and, I mean, uh, unless you really concentrate on it, is that you hear their breathing quite a mm -hmm. lot. Mm -hmm. That was the sound, uh, the sound engineer's choice. Uh, Christine, she said, it will be, you will see it, it will increase the empathy with the character when you hear them breathing, even when you don't have to. Um, and we tried that, we asked the, the, the actors to, to breathe in all the scenes where they appear. And, and indeed, it's subtle at times, but it, it makes a difference. I think, um, I mean, that's a typical example of how we manipulate the spectator unconsciously. Mm -hmm. um, they won't come out of cinema saying, I really like the sound of breathing in that film. Mm -hmm. um, they, they will just feel uh, uh, in a subtle way closer to the characters. Mm -hmm. But you say it's a, a simple or a delicate film. Um, one change uh, between the last run of episodes we recorded and this new run of episodes recording is I've become a father in that time. And now my experience of this film is so different because even though it starts as a castaway story, it becomes a story that encompasses the whole of human emotion and experience from love, birth, growing up, death, to yeah. uh, leaving home, finding your tribe and all these things. Mm -hmm. um, it feels, even though being dialogue-free, being some you know, animation and so on, are ways of distancing. It's such a powerful, emotional, and sounds almost personal film. Is, is that the way it, it, you describe it yourself? Do you, are you a personal <coughs> filmmaker? Yes, I think that's nice. Thank you. Um, I was a, fa a father of two very young children when I did Father and Daughter, which is about parents' relationship. Mm -hmm. And although I didn't say to myself, oh, let's do a film about parents' relationship, it must have made an impact on me. Mm -hmm. I, I believe I've become a different person since the birth of, of my children, two, two children, um, on, uh, not just on a hormonal level, but emotional, on a subtle, subtle level, the priorities in life. And... Uh, it's just also, you know, we, we, you, we've all seen those photo albums where you see at the, on the first pages the baby photos and last pages the, the last photos of the, the, when the person was still alive. Yeah. And it always has always impressed me deeply to see a whole lifetime within a short uh, time or within one book. Mm -hmm. um, I find it very moving. The, the, um, 
the, the the ephemeral quality of our lives. We get born, we we um, are rebellious, we we have we make love, we we suffer, uh, we we look back on our lives, and then we have we are gone again, mm-hmm. completely gone. Uh, I mean, our bodies, of course, mm-hmm. and that I find very always very moving. Yeah. It's one thing we've spoken about with some of the other films in the Studio Ghibli library, that Miyazaki and Takahata have voices in their films. They have points to make, but they're often didactic or they're analysing or they're political mm. or they're talking to a generation below them or, or, or whatever, um, which is, we've, we've talked about some similarities between your films, but that's one difference here if you're, mm. you're using the film to mm. work out your own emotional yes. relationship with the world. Yeah. I'd love to know, in your collaborative production relationship with Ghibli and Takahata in particular, what were the conversations you were having oh, when yes. the film was being made? Yes, of course. Were you responding to the, these Yes, levels? and you asked me earlier, sorry, I forgot. Um, we um, we had lot, just lots of conversations during the development of the story, which took a bit more than four years. Mm-hmm. Um, I started in early 1907, and, I mean, writing my synopsis was early 1907, and I would go to Tokyo on a regular basis. Um, occasionally, I would meet a representative, Steve Alpert, who was international sales, who was my kind of my in-between producer, mm-hmm. um, because he speaks both languages, mm-hmm. so it's easy. And he would sometimes come to London, and we would talk then. Um, I um, I just listened to their feedback a lot, um, and sometimes it was not appropriate. I had struggled with some parts of the story, as I said earlier, they, they're vulnerable. And there, I, what you do then is you you try this, and oh, it doesn't work, you try that, it doesn't work, you try that, you try different things. And there, uh, their feedback was very useful. Mm. They would say, we don't get it, why did you do that? And that immediately rings my, my alarm bells. I think, okay, that if they don't get it, then I, sh- I should really look at that, so that's, mm. that's not working. Um, they were... Takata always ended conversations, yeah, but you are the director, you decide, right. um, because that's their attitude to directors. <laughs> but he had very strong opinions mm-hmm. um, at times, and, and some of them were excellent, and I immediately, immediately heard them and immediately integrated them, mm-hmm. others, others less. Uh, I mean, to give you an example, the woman in the story is, is very natural. She's from nature. She's not from a particular culture. She's just at ease in her body. She's relaxed. She is wise. Um, she belongs to nature. Mm. That makes her quite mysterious also because she doesn't say anything. Um, as you know, she, she comes from a place, um, an unexpected place. So she, the, mis- the mystery of the woman is, is a, color, a positive quality. But if you push that too far, she becomes too mysterious and that's disturbing. Um, then you don't connect with her somehow. That Takata pointed out very que- clearly. Mm. Um, and... I remember he said, you know, um, people think that in Japan uh, men are stronger than women, but I, I think women are stronger than men. And the translator, who's, who's a woman, Mikiko, <laughs> she translated for me and she added, and I agree. <laughs> <laughs> so he gave some very particular tips for how about this and how about that to, mm-hmm. to make her more present, at the same time uh, um, emphasizing the beauty of her mystery. Yeah, That's just one example. Yeah, and he, he always, reading about him, his interests were in French literature and animation as well, and he had a very European outlook. Was, mm. it, was that your impression of him as well? Yes. He loved talking about his cultural knowledge, which was, as you say, vast, very Japanese, very, very profound cultural knowledge of Japan, including uh, the Zen Buddhist philosophy, which which I I love personally too, but also very knowledgeable about about France and and, and the world in general. Personally, he was very discreet. He's, mm-hmm. Although we spent uh, lots of very nice moments together, he, he didn't talk about himself or his family. Um, you, you don't get invited at, at a Japanese home. It's, I, I mean, maybe you do, but not in our industry. It's, it's quite uncommon. And um, he didn't ask too many personal questions about uh, on me. Okay. But the, f- the fact, as you mentioned earlier, the fact that the film is coming from a very personal place, um, that's the only way I could make the film. He recognized that in my short film, mm-hmm. and I think he celebrated that. Mm-hmm. He, he recognized that. Yeah. I think one, one 
before we open up to the audience, I think one question, Jake and I are both, we incorporated into the look of the podcast, we're fans of the iconography of Studio Ghibli. And the first thing, the very first thing you see in the Red Turtle is the Studio Ghibli logo in red, yeah. as opposed to the traditional blue. Yeah. Was, did, was, how did you do that? Was there yeah. a contract involved? Were there <laughs> yes. legal teams? <laughs> I don't remember who got the idea. I think they did. Oh, really? Um, they asked me to design the red color. Mm -hmm. And... I, I chose one not not too intensely red. Um, I mean, the style of the film, and I changed the layout a bit of of the actual drawing. Um, and their reply was, "Don't touch the layout of the." <laughs> <laughs> okay, colors fine. Yeah, yeah. The color is fine. It's a lovely red. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, do we have any questions from the audience uh, for Michael about the film, about Studio Ghibli, or any comments on the movie? Oh, we have one down here. One here in the corner. Bit of microphone, just coming away. Thank you, Thank you very much for, for coming in and, and kind of sharing your, your opinions. Um, wanted to understand, you were talking just then about how the, the turtle is a kind of woman from nature and that sort of thing. Wanted to get a sense for, because I think Princess Kagoya, which Takahata did, the, the woman in that comes from like a similar place and whether you had kind of shared your opinions on, on those two and what, you know, I, I think they probably came out at about the same time, um, almost, whether they informed each other the development of those two characters or so. Yeah. Um, Takata started on Kaguya after I'd already uh, written, or while I was still uh, writing the story of the Red Turtle, but it was more or less complete the storyboard. So when I heard he was doing um, Princess Kaguya, I was surprised because I... I um, I didn't know this. The, it's a, it's an ancient story from Japan. Um, I quickly read the story, and it's very much starting with the bamboo forest. And I asked Takata, "Do you think there will be any conflict between making two films where a bamboo forest has a, has quite an important place?" And he said, "No, it will be stylistically too, so differently, so different, and in the place in the story too." Uh, he didn't feel any problem with that. Then um, he never talked about Kaguya. I, don't, I didn't ask him any questions um, because at that point we started really working full production on the Red Turtle and we had, we had very little contact then. He, he basically said, okay, the story is good, we are happy with everything, now make the film, we are here if you need us, um, but we, we won't ask uh, the latest updates on a regular basis. And, um, and that was natural, We've, we felt that it was natural. Um, so I, I was working my film, he was working on his film, when I saw the finished film, I thought, okay, yes, two lovers are flying in the air, okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but then it's not his idea, it's not my idea, it's it's uh, archetypal idea, and I don't think our films are so close that, that people will say, they've used the same idea twice. <laughs> uh, on, on that, on, Very quickly on that note, while I was nearly finishing the story, um, the big earthquake happened in Japan and a huge tsunami, as, as you may remember, which was very, very dramatic because we saw the footage on YouTube and on the news. And uh, at that point, of course, the, st the story of the Red Turtle had a tsunami. So I asked to Studio Ghibli, okay, the tsunami is really sensitive. Um, I want to keep it in because it belongs in the story. Um, but what do you say? Should we change it because uh, you can't just casually show a tsunami uh, when when a real one just happened? And they said we had a we had, we had a serious talk about that too. When the film will come out, it will be years after the, the event happened. Um, we think it's it's okay, it's appropriate. And besides, the tsunami in the Red Turtle is treated with respect. It's not a funny uh, funny event it's it's really really serious and they and they said and they they, they felt that that was appropriate too yeah michael you mentioned uh, earlier you mentioned that um the red turtle was released in japan on the same day as your name which is another film that has sort of fukushima imagery as, uh, as yeah. well um and that makes me think uh, how was this film received internationally in, in yes. japan the fact that it's a, almost a european international co-production but with ghibli on the front yeah before the film was finished, Suzuki told me, um, Japanese like Japanese films. <laughs> um, it basically, he said, uh, he warned me that it's, it's not obvious that the film will do well, even if it has a Studio Ghibli logo on it and, it's, and, and it comes with a Studio Ghibli aura. Um, 
because they have plenty of their own films which are excellent. Mm. And we were a bit disappointed with the distribution of um, The Red Turtle. Uh, the distribution was good. I mean, lots of cinemas, yeah. but the number of spectators was lower than they expected. I, I gasped. I thought it was high, but for Japan, it's low. Oh, really? <laughs> um, I don't. I'm sorry. I don't remember the numbers, mm. but they they were disappointed. Mm. The press was. The press, I mean, it was very embarrassing. The press was so positive, the, the um, articles. Uh, Studio Ghibli looked at the articles with, with surprise. He said, that's really nice. Um, in other countries, it varies a lot from country to country. In France, I'm very pleased with the number of spectators. It is an art house. I don't see it as an art house movie, not as a Pixar movie. Um, but in that context, it was really, really um, seen by, by many people. And right now it's in this circuit of education. In other words, school kids, as part of their curriculum, will see the film, will, which means hundreds of thousands of new spectators. Mm -hmm. um, that's in France because they're good at, at uh, celebrating French culture. They really are. They are yes. And over here, it came out on the same weekend as My Life is a Courgette, which is a, another lovely and animation too, going yes. in at a tight, under 80 minutes. Exactly. Well, exactly. Yeah. Much both in a in the space of time of a Marvel movie. Yeah. 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 Exactly. <laughs> um, um, any other questions for anyone in the room for Michael? Yeah, oh, we down in the so call. We've got two on the front row yeah. here. We'll come to you both. Hi. Um, thank you for um, answering these questions. Um, to a two-part question, really. Um, do Do you think you'll be working with uh, Studio Ghibli again in the future? And and do you think that your involvement uh, with them as a studio, as a foreign director, is, is a new stage in in Studio Ghibli's uh, history? Do, do you think that they are going to be um, making sort of uh, movies with foreign directors? Um, Thank you. I don't think I will make another film with them, but we've never had a um, confirmation on that. We never talked about it, actually. Um, Suzuki, my producer, he's, he's getting old. He, is, he wants to retire. He's still, almost against his will for a moment, still producing a new feature with uh, Miyazaki, um, Hayao Miyazaki, but also Goro Miyazaki. Um, Takata, as you probably know, has died very recently. And um, so I don't think there's another in, in um, another. I don't think we'll make another film together. They um, had a press release. I was there in Japan, and a member of the audience asked, "Is is this setting a precedent? Will you work more with with non-Japanese directors?" And Suzuki replied, "They wanted to work with me on the strength of my previous work, which they liked a lot." The fact that I was non, not Japanese was secondary, so they didn't have a strategy of choosing a non-Japanese director. And um, so, in, in other words, he kept it quite open, but he, he looks at the talent more than the nationality. But do you have another film lined up, another shorter feature, The Red Turtle mm -hmm. 2, even redder? <laughs> <laughs> to, yeah, it's always clear that it would never have a, a sequel. <laughs> um, uh, I'm, I mean, if someone else wants to make a sequel, it, that's his problem or her problem. Um, I don't have another feature in mind because I'm very choosy with the story. I get lots, lots of stories sent to me, uh, books or scripts, and they're fine, they're professional, and they probably could be very strong films with someone else. Um, I didn't, you know... I, this this film it took me nine years to make, right. and not just a nice casual profession. It's like uh, grinding, grindingly uh, tiring. Um, many many months, I would work between eighty and hundred hours a week, um, and that's and and then it's not just casual work drawing. It's like all the time solving problems. I would love to make another feature, but I don't have a story. Okay. Um, I've got a story for a short, mm -hmm. um, which is very strong. So I, I, that may come first. We'll keep our eyes open for that. Mm -hmm. I think there was one final question here on the front row. Um, why did you choose like a turtle out of all of the like other animals you could have chosen? Thank you. Yeah, you know what? In the beginning I didn't even realize there would be a turtle in the story. I knew he would be uh, one man alone on an island, a tropical island. It would not be home for him. He wants, he wants to go home. He doesn't want to stay. So that was very clear, and something would stop him from leaving. Um, just standing there saying, I can't leave, I thought it was not very exciting. So he would make a raft and make a raft again and make a raft again, but every time he would be stopped. That was very clear. 
I also really, really wanted to have a love interest. I wanted him to meet a woman and and develop that in a very natural way, not not um, not too much flirting, not too much uh, arguing and so on, but very natural man and woman coming together. Um, but I didn't know the answer to what stops him from leaving the island and how, where does the woman come from. I had ideas, but they were not strong enough. So what typically happens with uh, story writers and, and animators, you let it simmer in your mind. You just let it turn somehow, in, in sometimes consciously, you think about it, you think, oh, hang on, how about doing this or that? Uh, no, maybe not. And sometimes it just happens without you realizing. It's, I call it incubation period. And then suddenly you get, suddenly you get, oh my God, how about this? You get a really nice idea. Um, I call it, it comes from, from your unconscious. And then you, you look at it and you say, wow, this is good. And you get very excited. Then you wait a day or a week or even a month to see if it survives. Because sometimes you get very exciting ideas, but the next day you think, no, oh, it's a bit naff. Um, and then one more, I literally remember I, I've got, I live in London and I've got a small garden. I was walking in the garden and suddenly the idea of the turtle came up. I'd already gone through dolphin, whale, octopus, <laughs> the whole list, shark, um, and they're all fine, but they would have given the story a totally different angle. So many sequel ideas the now. Shark, yeah. sequel, yes. <laughs> How about two dolphins or two sharks? Or two oh, many. there we go. <laughs> yes. yeah. um, but there's something about the turtle, it has a carapace. And the fact that the carapace then is part of the woman, I thought, I mean, this is a spoiler for those who <laughs> listen, is, I thought, that's really, really interesting idea. Um, what's striking about people love turtles because they're solitary animals, they're, they're not violent, they they are marine creatures, but they can be on land. They have a head and arms and legs. They breathe. Um, at the same time, they are not cute. They, they have got a beak. They are hard. They, they have got slightly angry expression or irritated expression. Um, and that I liked, the fact that they are, you, you keep your, your respectful distance from them. Um, right, I think that, that might have to be it. For Thank you for so much for your questions. And yeah. thank you so much for being here at, at Podstock for this very special episode of Ghibliotech. Yeah. And thank you. Please join me in thanking Michael D. Dr. Witz. Thank you. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.